Well, thank you so much, Ben. Really good to see you all uh, here this morning. Thank you so much for making it here to GPC this morning. And if you're listening online later, thank you for doing that. You found us in part three of a four-part series we're calling Relationship Goals. And in this series, our goal is to get you a date. Just kidding, mostly. In this, we're uh, tracking in with Jesus' words when he was asked the question, what was the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? And he answered with two uh, answers. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Again, he just volunteered that and said, this is also part of the answer to the question that you asked about what is the one greatest commandment. Let me give you two. And here's what we said at the beginning of this series, that the first impression of God, first impressions of God are often formed by first impressions of people who claim to know him. So this is why it matters to us, that people who don't know who God is, their first impression of God will often be formed by the first impression of someone they meet who says, I know this God, like I'm following Jesus. So if that person they meet is someone who is loving, then it's possible that the God they serve is also loving. If they are forgiving, then maybe that God is also forgiving. If they are gracious, you get the point. But if they're not, then I'm not sure that I can believe there is a God like that. And so the reason we're doing relationship goals is essentially to help us get better at relationships. It mattered to Jesus, and it impacts how people see the God that we say that we serve. So we're in it. That's kind of where we're at. Now, with that being said, let me say this. Sometimes when we're in a series like this and we're talking about Jesus' words and his world that he lived in our world, it can almost feel like this sometimes. It can almost feel like our world is over here and Jesus' world is over there, as if they're separate and distinct, that the world in which Jesus lived and walked was very different than ours, and that would be true in general. Like, we don't speak Koine uh, Greek. Like, we aren't speaking Aramaic, right? Like, we're not in a language even, in a mind mindset of growing up in a world in which Jesus lived and walked. We don't deal with the Pharisees. We don't deal with the, uh, the, the background that Jesus, that we just don't do that. So sometimes it can feel like this in truth. Not only do we have Jesus' world and our world are different, but Jesus' world can also seem distant and very far away compared to the world in which we live in right now. And when we hear Jesus' uh, words coming from the world in which he lived, it can be like, ah, I hear an echo of that and that's interesting. But our world is so much more present to us, it's difficult sometimes to know, how do I take the words and the teachings that Jesus taught and the way that he lived and the means and all that that he walked in, how do I take all that and transfer that into the world in which I now live? Because this is very different in 2017 in North America, in the Northeast, in Lancaster County, if you're from here or in North America, very different than when Jesus walked. And I want to tell you that the reason I want to pause on this this morning for a couple minutes as I begin this message is that it will be a mistake, I believe, for me to talk about a series on relationship goals and not address a cultural and social issue that is present today that was not present when Jesus walked the planet. Underneath the issue I'm going to talk about, there's a lot of similarities in humanity. But there is something going on today in our world, culturally and socially, that changes how people relate to one another and how relationships are formed. It is changing how the next generation is seeing their identity and also changing how they relate to one another. And because it impacts the next generation, it impacts the future of the church. Because sometimes we recognize this as well in this image again. Our world is not actually like this nice little circle. Our world kind of bulges out in different directions. Things change about the world. We cannot control it. And in that bulge, in that change, in that shift, has been a massive shift and how information is passed from one person to another, and how relationships are formed even within the last 10 to 15 years. For example, for many of you when you were younger, if you're, let's say if you're older than 30, 
you'll remember this, I, I hope. If not, I'm, my timing is really off. If you're 30 or over, um, you may remember a time when in order for you to get uh, news about the world, let me say if you're 35 or over, in order for you to find out what was happening in the world, you'd have to wait until 6 o'clock when you or your parents turned on the television and watched something they called network news. And you'd listen to what they call a news anchor tell you what happened in the day. Does anybody remember that? How many of you today wait until 6 o'clock to find out the news for the day? Do you remember the time when, if you were older, again, maybe 30, 35 or over, when if you wanted to find out what was going on in your friends' lives or if they could come over to play, you would, you would actually ask your parents or your mom or your dad or whoever you were living with, can I call, that's right, call somebody on the phone that's attached to the wall, that's right, permanently in the kitchen or in the living room. Can I go to that? And you would walk to the wall and you'd pick this thing up and you'd push numbers and you would hear somebody's voice on the other side, and you would decide, let's meet at 4 o'clock or whatever. And then you know what you'd do? Wait. And you didn't know if they'd get a flat tire on the way over there, and you didn't know if they would change their mind, or you didn't know if their mom or dad would say, you can't go now. And you'd wait. There was a time in the world where if you wanted to know what your friends were doing and when they were doing it, or with whom they were doing it with, you actually had to be, get this, with them. It's true, like physically with them. There was a time when the, this is the part of the world that existed. Now, now, our world has changed so drastically in the last 10, 15 years that those things which I just told you, none of which are true for the next generation. In fact, they can't remember a time when that was true. What an archaic world that would be to live in. Why? Technological advancements, yes, but also the impact and the import of social media has changed drastically how our next generation is seeing who they are and how they relate to one another. In a moment, you can find out who's doing what, when, and where by logging on. It's real simple. Or by getting a snap, Snapchat, getting a connection like that. You can find out from people easily what's happening in the world without even waiting for six o'clock. Why in the world would you do that? And you don't ever use a phone to call somebody, right? Who would ever do that? Things have changed drastically. And, and John Dyer, in his book, uh, From the Garden to the City, said something very profound about the impact of technology. Because hear me on this, I'm not against technology. Te technological advances have been around forever. He uses great imagery, and I want you to understand this. He said, imagine the time in the world when shovels did not exist, and we just had our bare hands. Imagine going out into the, the field, and our job was to dig holes, and what would we do? We'd use what we had, and that was our hands. We'd use our hands to dig a hole. And someone got the bright idea, this can probably be easier. And so someone created a shovel. And when they created a shovel, it made the job easier. You can now dig 100 holes in a day with a shovel, whereas before you could dig maybe 10 or 15 with your hands. All of a sudden, the world is better, right? Kind of. But at the end of a day of digging 100 holes with your shovel, something happens to you because you dug with a shovel for 8 or 10 hours. All of a sudden, you have blisters 
where you didn't have them before. And your back aches in a new way, and your hamstrings might be pulled from bending over. Because here's what Dyer said. First, we shape our tools, and then our tools shape us. And that is the point. That first, we create Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, Pinterest, and then, without realizing it, our tools shape us. So here's the reality of what's happening in our world, briefly. We have, of all of the online audience, by the way, in North America, 80% of us almost are on Facebook. 32% are on Instagram, 24% on Twitter, 29% on LinkedIn, and 31%, I'm not sure why, are on Pinterest, okay? Mostly kidding about that last one. Anyway, although I think I've eaten some good food off Pinterest, so I can't hate on that too much, all right? A lot of people, a lot of people on all over the place. This is this part of the world in which we live on social media and its varieties of expressions. But here's the really interesting thing out of all this. You talk about the next generation. Look at Instagram for a minute. 60% of, of people 18 to 29 years old are on Instagram in North America. Six in 10, 18 to 29-year-olds on Instagram. Instagram is becoming the way the next generation, the primary social media outlet for the next generation. There's others, but this is the primary one. The majority of people log on daily to Instagram as well as to Facebook. 80 million pictures are shared every day. By the way, instant uh, interesting fact, it is estimated with that fact alone, the amount of pictures that are being taken now with uh, cameras on our phones that we have, there are more pictures, they estimate, taken every two minutes in our world today than in the entire 1800s. There were cameras back then in the 1800s, by the way. But in two minutes, we are generating as a people more pictures than even in an entire century, although back in the 1800s. It's a crazy, crazy world. First we shape our tools, and then our tools shape us. Here's what happens. Uh, this young lady named Adriana Mariella wrote this in an article, how Instagram is affecting the way we perceive ourselves. She said this, a friend recently invited me to a polo match in um, Newport, Rhode Island, happens to me all the time, and included a reminder of how wonderful the day would look on Instagram in the invitation. Interesting, isn't it? We hear from those involved in uh, the Instagram world on a regular basis that when pictures don't have enough likes, what happens to them? They get taken down. You take them down. They don't get enough likes. You take them down. The Royal Society for Public Health in England did a study last year, and they showed this, that half, get this, half of 14 to 24-year-olds who use Instagram and Facebook, they said that it exacerbated their feelings of anxiety. It made them worse. Half of the people who use that said it makes me more anxious. 70% of the same group, 14 to 24-year-olds, said that Instagram makes me feel worse about my body image. Interesting. 70%. This makes me feel worse about my body image. One quote of a young lady involved in the study said, Instagram easily makes girls and women feel as if their bodies aren't good enough as people add filters and edit their profiles in order for them to look, quote-unquote, perfect. This young lady, Australian teenager, Asina O'Neill, who has more than half a million followers in late 2015, uh, she ended up making an announcement on her uh, Instagram profile that she was quitting uh, Instagram. It made headlines. When you have a half a million people, I guess it does make headlines. And here's why she said she was quitting Instagram. Instagram is contrived perfection made to get attention. Very interesting. This is a teenager in Australia saying this. this isn't just me. Half a million followers. Instagram is contrived perfection made to get attention. Now, I'm not hating on Instagram. 
I'm not hating on any of the social media outlets. I'm just saying, when we shape our tools, then our tools shape us. And if we don't stop and ask, how are these tools shaping us? We will not know how to relate well to the next generation. We won't know how to relate well to one another, and we will be blindsided by how it shapes our souls. Now, this, I believe, is an echo of what is a longing in all of our hearts ever since the Garden of Eden. This desire to find a place in the world where perfection can be attained, where I can add a filter or I can create a space that is beautiful. And let me tell you, there's nothing wrong, nothing wrong with creating beauty, aiming for that. This is God's design in the world. I'm not against that by any stretch. Please, please, please. I just want to say that when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, when they sinned and were kicked out of the Garden, humanity has been ever since that longing and scratching to get back to a place where they feel at peace and feel perfect. And it is just that now, in this generation, in this world that we live in, we now have given a tool to the next generation where they can instantly, instantaneously, several times a day, if they would like, try to create a space where they look and feel perfect. The longing for all of our souls is for that. It's just we've given greater access than ever before to this next generation. This, by the way, doesn't surprise God. This doesn't surprise God. This isn't a new effort of humanity. We just have a new way to express it. And here's what I tell you this morning. That instead of God telling us, please stop, please stop, please stop, I think what he suggests is, Post your pictures. Connect in relationship. Use these platforms for all the good that they can be used for. But in all of this, put on one filter. Put on a filter that's better than any of the filters that Instagram has to offer. Put on a filter that will change the way that you see yourself and the way that you see your friends. And that filter is a filter that the Apostle Paul wrote about when he wrote a letter to the church in Colossae many, many, many years ago. And that's the filter I want to take just a few minutes to look at with you this morning. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to the book of Colossians, a little letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. And he's writing about what it is that we can add to put over all of our relationships that will indeed create a space that is the kind of space that we are looking for. If you don't own a Bible, that's no problem. There's a Bible near you in the pew around you. And we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 this morning. It's a small little letter. It's in the right two-thirds of what we call your New Testament, the right two-thirds of your Bible. Um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Uh, Colossians is a fourth book and fourth letter in those small little collection of letters there. Okay, so Colossians chapter three. I'm reading from the New International Version. Just going to back up to verse twelve, and we're going to end on verse fourteen. Um, verse twelve and thirteen we covered in the first two weeks of this series. Uh, Paul writes there in verse twelve. He says, "Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion." kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. 
Okay, and that's where we were last week, talking about forgiveness, and the week before that, talking about all these virtues to put on, the, the acts of kindness that we need to be doing for one another. And then Paul writes this great follow-up sentence that really provides this filter for all of us to put on. And here's what he says in verse 14. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Okay? And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So he's saying, you have these virtues, look at verse 12 for your virtues again, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Like if that doesn't cover it all, if that doesn't cover how you feel toward one another, then put on, like take another piece of equipment and put on one more thing. Like before you allow the enemy, the person you're upset with, before you allow them too much of a place in your heart and allow bitterness to grow, before you're too frustrated with your, your in-laws or too frustrated with your roommate or, or too frustrated with your ex, before you get too upset with your teacher or your parent, before things get really kind of separated in, in relationship, before all that happens and you've tried to forgive and you've tried to be compassionate, you have tried over and over again to be patient, you've tried it. Before you just give up, He's just saying, over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And this word love is one of three words for love used in the New Testament. One word for love is a kind of brotherly love that I might share uh, with uh, someone who works on a project with me or is on a team with me, someone who I feel an affection for is a kind of brotherly, appropriate friendship, kind of strong bond of brotherly love. Another love is kind of a marital or physical intimacy love. And another love is this word that's used here called agape love, which is selfless love, the fullest expression of love that we can have. He's saying put on this agape kind of love for everybody. What does that mean? What does that mean? Like, <laughs> if you were to walk into church, let me put it this way, if you were to walk into church and I were to tell you the church wants you to love people, I bet you would be like, seriously? That's a new one. I had no idea. Or if I were to say, hey, you know what? God would want you to love people. Again, your response would likely be similar, shock and awe, floor to the ground, I mean, jaw to the ground, right? Like, I can't believe that's true. All right, okay, so this message we have heard, and rightly so, because it's good. But here's a question. Here's a question that I want you to consider asking as you think about, what does it mean, then? What does it mean for me to put on love? What does that actually mean? Many of you know it in your mind, but what does this actually mean in practice and relationship to the people who are around me? And here's a simple question. What is the loving thing to do? Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think for a minute. Who are the people around you who, if you were to ask this question about, it would change the dynamic of your relationship with them right now? What is the loving thing to do when my parents don't get it and ask me to, whatever? What is the loving way to respond to them? Do you think that would change the way that you respond? What about your kids? When my kids don't respond, what is the loving thing to do? What is the loving way that I can express 
being a parent right now. When your roommates don't do the dishes, what's the loving thing to do? When your ex acts like an ex, what's the loving thing to do? When your boss is focused on himself, herself, and doesn't understand where you're bringing to the table, let me ask you, what is the loving thing to do? When your employees are coming and not getting what you want, what is the loving thing to do? What is the loving way that I can respond right now? How can I respond right now? In which I can ask this question, what is a loving thing to do? I just want to tell you, this has been a, uh, a game changer for me in my experience. This question may or may not work for you. I don't know if it will. I'll just tell you it has worked for me. It has worked for me because it has forced me to stop and actually ask an intentional question beyond just the idea of God is love, I should love people. When I think about the people that I engage with and I interact with, and like you, there are people who I look at and I'm like, ooh, 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 we have those moments of like, oh, do I have to, have to? And the frustrations that come, we've talked about this in verse 13 of Colossians 3, that we need to bear with each other. There is a weight and a burden of dealing with each other because we annoy each other, just the reality. And Paul's straight with that in the verse prior. So as we bear with each other and kind of get in each other's way sometimes, I, I'm just telling you, I ask myself regularly, man, okay, let me pause it before I get too frustrated, and I've got to ask, even internally, God, what, what is the loving way to respond here? And sometimes that means forgiveness without even needing to talk. Sometimes it still means discipline or a, a stronger response, right? Like love still requires courage. Love still requires strength of character to carry out. I'm not talking about everyone turns into a Hallmark movie, right? And I could pull in rose petals and whatever harp music in the background. I'm not talking about that soft, like weak kind of thing. I'm talking about a love that chooses to do the selfless thing and the, the good and godly thing. Like, what is the loving thing to do in this relationship before I go nuclear? What's the loving thing to do? Here's what I'm going to say about love. If you were to do this, if you were to ask this question, what is the loving thing to do? You know what would happen? I'll tell you what will happen. What will happen is the last part of this verse will happen. Look at the verse again, Colossians 3.14. Put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Putting love on as a filter over all of your relationships actually gives you the perfect space that you want anyway. Let me, let me put it this way. Love is a filter that, when applied, makes every blemish fade away. Love is a filter that, when applied, makes every blemish fade away. When you consider putting love on in all your relationships as a filter that goes over everything that you do and, and the way you see one another, I'm, I'm telling you, you will never create a space in your life that is perfect because you've nailed it with how your hair is done, with how your lighting is done in the background, with how your body looks. You are never going to nail that perfection. It is a fleeting, fleeting thing. And that is why Asina O'Neill quit Instagram because she said it is a place that is, with contrived perfection made to impress. It's made to you know, perform. And yet we want that place where I feel at home and at peace 
And this is what Paul says in the letter, put on love, which binds it all together in perfect unity. That when, when I look at you and you look at me and you see my blemishes and you decide to love me anyway, it is a profound, profound, profound thing. That is what God has created us to be for one another. You're never going to nail it. You're never going to find You know this. You're never going to get enough likes. You're never going to get the filter just right. But what Paul is saying is forget that. Please, please, please forget that. Put on love that covers every blemish. This isn't the only place in the Bible, by the way, that speaks about this issue. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon wrote, and he put it this way, he said, hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all wrongs. It just does. It, the decision to love despite covers all wrongs. It just gives you grace. In 1 Peter 4, 8, Peter says this, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. We are going to get in each other's way. And Peter just saying, you want to you get it right? Don't worry about getting it all right on instant uh, or on social media. Don't worry about getting it all right and how you're all uh, prettied up in a relationship with one another. Don't worry about all that. But put on love and all the blemishes will go away. Put on love. What is the loving thing to do? What is the loving way to respond? How can I love you well in this interaction? And everything else fades away. Question, do you, do you think um, we need this love in this world today? Like, do, you think, do you think it's possible that people around you are searching for the kind of perfect place where they can be known and, and cared for? Like, do you think that's possible? I was sitting at a board meeting at Peckway Valley uh, maybe two weeks ago, and um, two uh, administrators were reporting on the mental uh, health statistics at the school district at Peckway Valley. I have nothing else to basis on. This assumption is that what I'm about to share with you is also shared at Lampeter Strasburg, is also shared at Conestoga Valley, is also shared at Octorera, is also shared around our county, because I don't think it's unique to Pequot Valley, but these statistics are true. But I ask the question, do you think we are living in a world where people, especially our next generation, needs to feel loved, even though they have these incredible platforms in which to show what they're doing? Here's some of the mental health statistics happening right now at the Pequot Valley School District. The question was asked, or the statement was made here, and students had to respond to this. How many have felt sad or depressed most days in the last 12 months, current data? In the last year, most days I have felt sad or depressed, meaning four out of seven days at least. So the majority of every week in the last year I have felt sad or depressed. 35% of students responded, that's me. 35%, over a third of students have said, yep, I feel sad or depressed most days in the last year. The next thing to respond to is this. At times, I think I am no good at all. Like, I'll have moments where I go through and I think my value is rock bottom. I have no value at all. 33% of students responded, yep, that's me. Finally, this one. All in all, I'm inclined to think that I am a failure. Like, this is even worse. Like, at the end of the day, no, I'm worth nothing. A failure. 17% of students said, yep, that's me. And so I asked the question again as we look around us. And we say, man, we got opportunities like never before to post all the awesome things that are going on in our lives. 
and yet we have a younger generation overall where 70%, according to that one survey in England, says Instagram <laughs> makes me feel worse about who I am. Over half say it increases my layers of anxiety, even in our local area here. All of these students struggling with identity, confidence issues about relating to the world around them and who they are. And so I ask the question again, what's a loving thing to do? What's a loving thing to do? What's a loving thing to do to the people who sit next to you in school? What's a loving thing to do to the people who you know are just marginalized a little bit from the crowd that's the in crowd? What is the loving thing to do to the families who are struggling in different ways around us? What is the loving thing that that I can do? Because here's what we know. At the one hand, we need to do things that are they're kind and loving, patient. Like we need to care well for one another. We need to love each other well. That just, that's common knowledge. This is what Paul writes about in Colossians 3.12. We do acts of kindness. So what's the loving thing to do? On the one hand, we know we serve each other. We care. But I also want to say this, that the loving thing to do is also to help people come to see and come to know the God of love. Not only serve them in their needs. Like the loving thing to do is also to show people this is who God is. Like he's a God of love. Even people who haven't been in church before likely know what I'm about to say now and likely can finish this sentence or phrase with me. And actually, why don't we do a little... Uh, audience participation on this one. If you know, and you can finish the sentence with me, then join in when you're ready. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Good. We had some King James people, NIV people, New American people. All right, we were a little... But this is the point. We know the truth of that. For God so loved the world. So the most loving thing we can do, yes, acts of kindness and service like we're doing with the Together Initiative Network, common good things, absolutely. In dealing with people who we're in conflict with, grace, forgiveness, please. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, please. But what is the most loving thing we can do? Continue to love well, but also Invite people to come to know the God who is love. Right? I think it was Frederick Lehman, if I'm right on his first name, who ended up writing a song. He was in California at the time, and I wasn't planning to do this, so forgive me if I get the words wrong a little bit, but um, you can help me along if you know them. But he wrote a song that we're going to sing here in a moment, and um, he said, it was beautifully uh, poetic, could we, with ink the oceans fill, or were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, which means a pen, and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. This is the truth, right? So what is the most loving thing to do? Yes, please, please, please serve each other well. Please 
love each other well, but also please invite people to know the God who so loved the world. And so let me invite you. Let me invite you. If you are, if you are someone who um, is still searching for the kind of love and perfection relationship that you're trying to find somewhere, let me, let me please help you see. Your perfection will never come from the perfect pictures, the perfect posts, or anything like that. Enjoy that stuff rightly, okay? I'm not against it. But know that love is the filter that when put on covers all the blemishes. And secondly, please, in the right way, in an intentional way, invite people to come to know the God who is love. And ask yourself, as you interact this week with the people that you see, what's a loving thing for me to do? What is the loving thing for me to do? And let's continue to point people toward the God who is love. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be in a text and be reminded of something that we, uh, many of us, uh, know and are not surprised by to one degree, that we're to love people well, and that as God, you are a God of love. But I pray for us where we have forgotten that in relationships that are regular and the difficulties of bearing with one another. I pray that you would give us the courage to forgive and to be humble and to give another chance to, even when wounds are deep. Not only that we can have a good relationship with people as if that's the end goal, but that people who look at our relationships can look to and then beyond that and see the God who is love. That their impressions of God are informed by our ability to love well. So I pray that you'd help us to ask that question. When we're frustrated, when we're worn down, when we're struggling with our identity even, what is the loving thing to do? And do it. And at the end of the day, as people interact with us and we seek in our best efforts to be kind and compassionate, as forgiving as we can be with all of our limitations, I pray that we would take the opportunities to share and to invite people to come to know this God who is love, who so loved the world that he gave his only son to die for us. Give us courage because it takes courage to love well for your sake and for our benefit. And we'll pray this in Jesus' name.